Welcome to Married to Politics. This podcast focuses on political topics that you accidentally end up discussing with someone way more knowledgeable than you. Except here, I save you the trouble by discussing politics accidentally on purpose. I'm Sarah Goggins, here with my husband, Derek Santola, who is the true political expert. Not unlike most mornings in our house, each episode, Derek surprises me with a key political issue that he is overprepared to discuss while I ask the hard-hitting and often awkward questions until I either understand or tire him out on the topic. So, Derek, what are we talking about today? Well, Sarah, we're going to talk about last night's State of the Union delivered by President Biden. But before we get to that, maybe we should explain to our listeners why we haven't recorded anything in almost a year. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, a lot of big stuff's been happening. Such as... I mean, whew. we had a baby. She's right next to us, so you might hear, you know, guest caller speaking. We are currently recording this in our living room of a house that we did not own the last time we produced an episode. So it's been a, you know, we've had a lot of stuff going on, but no excuse to be missing out on these daily chit chats because they've been happening we just haven't been recording them we've been saving all of this information and every week it goes by that we say we should record a podcast this is important we should record a podcast this is important but alas new baby new house new job for me new dog uh all of these things have been taking our focus but here we are ready to deliver a very important discussion on State of the Union. So, Sarah. Which is great because I had a headache last night and did not watch. So, I have no clue what was said or why. That's right. Hit me with it. This episode is especially for those that either slept through the State of the Union or had other obligations. Uh, It was a special moment for me because Lilith, our baby, at the ripe age of two months, sat with her father and watched as all the dignitaries entered... um, the House of Representatives, and I explained to her who every single person was. Who were the was. dignitaries? Let's start there. Well, so it was a big fan affair. Um, this is President Biden's first State of the Union. He delivered a joint address last year, but it wasn't called the State of the Union because he hadn't been in office. Um, he had only been in office for a few months at that point. He was newly inaugurated. And so everyone was without a mask. They had to be COVID tested, Mm. which caused some Republican legislators to not attend because they refused to be tested. But everyone had to be tested, but they didn't have to wear masks. So it was a joyous occasion um, in that respect and that everyone was able to attend. Um, And it was your usual, both chambers, the House and the Senate were in attendance. Five of the nine justices of the supreme court do they count as dignitaries i still want to know who the dignitaries yeah are. dignitaries are important people that attend oh things. just like everybody there was in just everybody dignitaries? it was like there were no there were oh, just there, say that just say the asshats on capitol hill <laughs> <laughs> but there were important people who were there i mean um in the first lady's box it's custom that the first lady of the united states has important individuals and she hadn't uh invited the ukrainian ambassador to the United States to sit in her box. The president had also invited um, an employee of a union in um, Pittsburgh area, as well as a seventh grader who is an insulin advocate. This is someone who requires type 1 diabetes and requires insulin. 
By um, insulin advocate, you mean an advocate for... Lower costs of insulin. Big pharma to drop those prices. That's right. And okay. we'll get into that a little bit later sure. because that was part of the president's speech. Uh, yeah, so hit me with it. What was the tone? There's a lot going on in the world right, right. now. There what is, was the tone? There is there is a lot going on in the world. Before we get to the tone, I want to just briefly go over some quick trivia because I found this interesting. Why do we have a State of the Union in the first place. Well, it fulfills requirements. If you just want to give me questions to ask, I can do that. <laughs> hey, Derek, <laughs> why do we have a State of the Union? That's a great question, Sarah. So the reason we have a State of the Union uh, is it fulfills a requirement um, outlined in Article 2, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution, which requires that the president provide an update to Congress on the nation's budget, economy. But does it have to be a fancy speech? Like, could he just, like, tweet it in 180 characters? You know, that's a really interesting question. Up until 1913, there was no speech. It was just a written report provided to Congress. So in this new era, technically, I guess, a president could tweet a State of the Union to Congress. There's no requirement. I'm not advocating for it. I just thought that would be an interesting question. Yeah. No, I think that is an interesting thing to explore. I hope it doesn't come to that, because usually it's a big um, achievement of the president to go out, deliver the speech, and outline their roadmap for their vision of the future and for the United States. Okay, so a roadmap's not the same as a report card. Is it a little bit of both, of here's where we've been, here's where we're going? That's exactly it. It's here's the past year, here's the state of our union, which... Uh, more often than not, is, is strong no matter what is going on. Um, it's the president's ability to r- rally the troops, so to speak, and to try to get everybody moving in the same direction. Okay. And um, What's some more fun trivia that I don't know to ask about, but hit me with some facts? Yeah, like I said before, uh, Woodrow Wilson was the first person to deliver an in-person speech, and this was in the year 1913, right around the time of World War One which is important because there have been several wartime states of the Union. The most recent one in memory is um, George W. Bush's Axis of Evils discussion in 2002, where he outlined North Korea, Iran, and Iraq all being state sponsors of terrorism and the new um, bad guys, so to speak. Interestingly, uh, Russia wasn't on that list, but now what's been going on in the news um, Russia is front and center for President Biden uh, as he's rallied the uh, coalition of countries to um, oppose Vladimir Putin's expeditions into Russia. Yeah, Putin's a dickhead. He is a dickhead, and I think most sorry for this PG thirteen version of our podcast. Um, so just a quick blurb on what's going on in Russia, in case you haven't been paying attention to that. So on the twenty fourth of February. Um, Vladimir Putin launched an attack into uh, independent Ukraine. Um, just as a quick backstory, in 2014, Russia annexed a portion of that country, um, declaring it to be independent. Putin tried to do the same exact thing this year by uh, saying that two areas in the Donbass or the southeastern region of Ukraine were independent um, and pro-Russian. Yeah, but then he went to... He didn't just go to war in those two little areas. He went to war with the whole country. That's a whole separate episode. I don't... We gotta keep this to State of the Union. Sure. Because I have a thousand questions on the Russia-Ukraine situation, too. So... So either hit me with some new facts or trivia or let's dive into what he talked about. Yeah. What Biden talked about. So let's get into the State of the Union uh, in earnest. So... The first third of the president's discussion was about the situation in Ukraine and Russia. 
and as uh, um, he outlined, it, you know, it's the top of mind for everyone. It's, it's the big foreign policy issue of our time. And um, the president's discussion was mostly about unification, saying that the international order that's been in place since World War II has stood firm. NATO and other allied countries have opposed Russia's actions in Ukraine. And the president outlined one major new policy, which was to join the European Union and Canada in banning any Russian aircraft from entering American airspace. Now, this is on top of already laid out several issues of sanctions that were aimed at the Russian economy, uh, and then specifically um, at Russian oligarchs who are um, wealthy individuals who are aligned with Putin, and then specifically sanctioning... Other dickheads. Putin and his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. And his band of merry dickheads. That's right. Um, I'll stop saying dickheads now. So, so far... The president has not declared war against Russia, but he's he's taking a very strong stance and trying to avoid any sort of... Um, but the president also can't declare war. Congress has the power to declare war, right? Like He can't just go in the... He couldn't have gone to the State of the Union and just said, we're at war with Russia. Like Congress would have been up in arms. That's right. Okay. He couldn't have done that. Although he's the commander-in-chief, he has command over troops. That's right. Constitutionally, he cannot... Declare war. And just quickly, do we have a pulse on where our Congress is on wanting to go to war with Russia? Mixed reviews. Okay. And like okay. you said, I think we should do a separate. Great. Episode just wanted to on, just on wanted capturing to everything. But he also made clear to the American people that our involvement, although it may not include troops yet, um, will not be without pain. Uh, inflation is the major domestic issue in the United States right now. Prices are soaring, especially at the gas pump. And what he announced was that there was going to be um, a union of about 30 countries with which the United States would be one, um, releasing about 60 million barrels of oil from the strategic national stockpile to try to quell rising gas prices. So is gas the main pain point of inflation? Because I'm seeing a lot of prices go up. And my follow-up question on inflation, is this a uniquely American problem or is there inflation all over the world? Like, is this a Biden thing or a worldwide problem? So, to answer your first question, inflation is affecting all sorts of sectors of the economy. Okay. And the president, later in his speech, outlined his plan to attack inflation here domestically. Okay. As it pertains specifically to oil, the issue is that 7% of the U.S.'s uh, energy portfolio comes from Russian oil and natural gas, which is an issue if we're at odds with them over the issue in Ukraine. And so in order to circumvent um, the flow of oil and cut off payments to Russia, the U.S. and other countries, uh, including those in Europe who are beholden to Russia as well, are diversifying their portfolio, getting it from places such as Saudi Arabia and others uh, in order to cut off Russia and not drastically increase the cost of oil here in the United States. Okay. The president has also... Uh, discussed aid packages. So to date, um, there has been a commitment of $350 million in military aid to the Ukrainian military, which includes shipments of anti-tank Javelin missiles. And then there's also been a request to add a, a, an additional $6.4 billion uh, to send to NATO, which is the Northern Atlantic Treaty Organization, which Ukraine is not a part of. Um, however, uh, NATO is the international organization which is directly in a 
opposed to Russia uh, to shore up its eastern flank. And as I said, we could get into more details there, but just know that military aid is being sent to Ukraine and to NATO uh, in order to oppose Vladimir Putin's action in that country. So the other two-thirds of the speech, what was that focused on? So shifting from international foreign relations and focusing on domestic issues, the president wanted to uh, really drive home that he understands that there are um, pains in the economy, specifically looking at inflation and, interestingly, um, discussing COVID towards the end. So for inflation, he laid out in um, different phases his plan to attack the problem. And, and really, it was a repackaging of the his Build Back Better domestic agenda, although never saying those words together. Um, as listeners may know, Build Back Better was the White House's proposal for transforming the economy. Um, however, it ground to a halt in the Senate. It's dead on arrival thanks to Manchin and Senate. Thanks to uh, specific senators who would not vote in favor of the proposal and the infamous... Um, Why are we saying their name? Manchin and Cinema. Manchin and Cinema. Um, or the two uh, Democratic senators who will not vote for it, but also, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the deal would have to clear the filibuster threshold or go through budget reconciliation. Um, For information on that, see previous episodes that we've recorded. So as to inflation, he laid out uh, three specific pillars, one of them being reducing drug prices. And so he called out big pharmaceutical companies and um, identified how it was crazy how the same drugs that are sold abroad are severely marked up in price here as they're sold in the United States. And he pointed to um, one of the dignitaries, that seventh grader uh, who requires insulin, um, and, and how insulin prices were severely more expensive here in the United States. This is not new information, though. Um, what can be done? Like, what's his plan to fix it are they going to pass legislation are can he do an executive order i mean i'd be very interested to see not just him but everyone in congress how much money is given to their coffers from big pharma yeah a lot of this goes back to he's he's trying to persuade congress to pass legislation there have been different bills put forth in several different congresses to try to attack this problem. One of the key things that he identified is letting Medicare be able to negotiate the price of prescription drugs. He identified that this is already going on. Is me- who is, when you say Medicare, is Medicare like a panel, a group? Like when I talk about here, Medicare, it's like it's insurance, the government insurance, but like who from Medicare, like is that a group? I, I see the commercials too. I don't know what that means. Yeah, like who so would be negotiating on behalf of Medicare? Medicare. Medicare is a government-funded um, payer. So is it an agency? Yes. So within the Health and Human Services um, Department, there is the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, CMS, which is um, covers health insurance but also pays for prescription drugs. So the heads of CMS would be – when they say let Medicare negotiate. Individuals that work at CMS would be the individuals who would be negotiating with pharmaceutical And companies. would those prices be just for people on Medicare or for – Everyone. It would be for individuals on Medicare. So how does that help everyone else? Like, is this little seven-year-old boy on Medicare? It's a start. I mean, for private insurers, there there are different methods with which that that would have to. Is um, there not a bigger fix though to solve it, not just for Medicare? 
Like, is Congress does do they have any interest in fixing it across the board? I think it's a it's it's a an issue that has definitely been debated and worth exploring from both sides, and perhaps we should do uh, another episode on this. But um, the big upward thrust is that this negotiation is already being tied for a subset of our population's veterans who receive their health insurance and prescription drugs through the VA system have their prescription drugs negotiated by Medicare, which is something the president highlighted that it's already being done, um, and so it could be done for a wider swath of the United States. I mean, I guess, and again, we can cover this. We're going to have to do a different episode on all of these subtopics, because in my follow-up question, like, are, is every other country a better negotiator than us? Why are their prices so much lower and ours not? Like, what rules and laws do they have in effect that, like, I assume these companies aren't just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Like, their policies and rules internationally in place that force those sales to be lower. Other countries have much stricter government-run healthcare programs where we have a more market-based health insurance and health economy. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. All right, what else did you discuss? All right, so we also talked about cutting energy costs, and this was a big push for greening of the economy, and this was the, um, the you know, anti-global um, climate change type of push and he called on Congress to uh, pass legislation to uh, incentivize individuals to weatherize their own homes that's you know switching the um, type of gas and fuel that you receive to heat and cool your home um, to switching to renewable types of energy I mean, he also I, talked about lowering did he connect the, cost. the dots on these because I feel like energy dependence like oil is energy energy dependence on Russia and other countries could also be quelched by this energy initiative by switching to a greener initiative that also arguably would make us more energy independent. Sure. I think that's when you discuss energy policies, that's, that's the big question, right? Is how can we wean ourselves off of fossil fuels? Should we ever um, wean ourselves off of um, natural gas it's a much bigger question and you're key to identify that, you know, if we were to put more investment in renewable energies, then we want to be beholden to Russia for oil and natural gas. However, we haven't gotten there. So okay. again, he's just kind of like hitting a, these are my ideas. Um, and, and to kind of speak more broadly, a state of the union is kind of a sweeping policy um, d- declaration and doesn't get into the nitty gritty. It's a report card and a wish list. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so what else is on his He also list? talked about cutting the cost of child care, capping that at 7% of household incomes, cutting the cost, which would cut the cost in half for most families, and would assist with um, allowing millions of women who had previously left the workforce due to a lack of child care to re-enter the workforce, which could help with the inflation issue given that much of inflation is due to a lack of um, companies having employees and being able to produce towards the demand. Yeah. And also an investment in home and long-term care, as well as universal three- and four-year-old pre-K. Love that. So then the question always comes back to, how do we pay for all this this wish list? And so what he talked about is that, again, he stood um, resolute in saying that he would add no new taxes on those earning less than $400,000. And then talked about how um, hundreds of the Fortune 500 companies pay zero in taxes and how he said that we could pay for all these things if we incorporated, through legislation, a 15% minimum tax rate. And he also talked about globally 
how um, the United States has been part of a coalition of 130 different countries to agree to a global minimum tax, which would prevent companies from shipping their, their headquarters and offshoring jobs in order to avoid a heavy U.S. tax burden. I mean, when you say heavy U.S. tax burden, do other countries not have a regular... I mean, is that heavy to pay... Is I mean, people say pay their fair share of taxes. Is it considered a heavy burden? I mean, most of these corporations are the one who, ones who use our government infrastructure more than your run-of-the-mill household. They're the ones who are on the streets, who are using our roads, our, definitely our, our travel mechanisms. How is it a heavy burden for to expect them to contribute to a system that they benefit from and use more than our house or any household income person? Yeah, I think you make a lot of really good points, right? If you're using our infrastructure here, you should be able to pay your share of the way. However, when I say heavy, um, anything is that's higher than zero would be considered heavy. heavy. But like what... I guess I don't understand is, is every other country in the world a tax haven? Like, you can just start a company in no, Canada or... No, there are specific identifiable tax havens. I mean, the Cayman Islands come to mind when people send their money offshore. But, but like, as far if your company, where are these companies offshoring to to save money? Let's do another episode on that. Okay. To, to delve it deep into okay. it. But what, what his point was saying that a large number of countries, 130 of them have agreed to a global minimum tax to ensure that countries aren't playing games, or that companies aren't playing games to avoid taxation. When will that go into effect? Or is that just kind of like a, it's a, a resolution will, like, yeah. scouts honor? <laughs> Basically, it's, it's a non-binding pact um, to agree that we will enforce this. So, like, we've signed on to this? Yes. But our Congress would still have to, like, we'd still have to pass we legislation. Have to ratif- That's right. Every treaty has to be ratified by Congress. Oh, okay. So it's basically a non-starter because that's not going to get passed. Well, it, it potentially. Oh, okay, that's fun. Yeah, but I mean, it's a good point. Again, wish list. It's a right, right. It's a good point to identify that. Like, this is how things would get paid for. Yeah. Um. Okay. So then he also had a section where he talked about enforcement in combating financial crime. He talked about nominating a uh, chief prosecutor for prosecuting fraud with pandemic-related programs. A lot of this was going on um, at the beginning of the pandemic when people stole. Congress was funds. was passing huge um, financial payments that were meant to keep companies afloat, and then people would create shell companies in order to be able to obtain financing and so can i keep you on the enforcement first because i think again even though i did not see this i feel like i saw a tweet or something you know very reliable source about biden very much saying he wanted to fund the police yes and i know there was a you know there's a lot of associate you know word association with democrats liberals and defunding the police Mm -hmm. but from what i understand biden is very pro funding the police did he touch on that yeah, absolutely. Twitter did not lie to me. Great. Twitter, you can thank Twitter for that bit of news. Um, so there were several sections where the president um, stamped himself as a clear moderate and received standing ovations from both sides of the aisle. Oh, really? Yes. Funding the police was one of them where he received uh, applause from Republicans. That's nice to see again. I feel yeah. like that hasn't happened in a minute. Well, it was much to the chagrin of 
the liberal wings of the Democratic Party, specifically Cori Bush, who's a junior congresswoman out of uh, Missouri, the St. Louis area, um, called the president to task after he made that statement saying that um, we've tried funding the police and this is what it's gotten for black Americans and people of color. Perhaps we should rethink um, our previous policies. So it's true that the president has wanted to fund the police, and I think that's more of a slogan rather than any sort of policy. But there's, there's much that's looked at from the White House and Congress in trying to reform law enforcement and the justice system in order to have, in, in order to have a more equitable um, outcome for, for people of color in this country. But, sure, we can argue on how laws and rules are being enforced by the by police but i think it's very clear he believes in a police presence a police force we can argue about how it's implemented whether it's fair or not but he definitely seems to be of the mindset of keeping police in cities and protecting people certainly i don't think he wants to get rid of police uh, at all yeah he, he's, he's definitely in favor of a, a more moderate stance than, than defunding the police. So to shift to, to, to COVID, he outlined a multi-step process um, that would lay out how we would ensure that the pandemic would not become uh, issue number one as it has been over the past several years. Oh the first my th- God. The first thing that he talked about were continuing vaccinations and treatment. He identified the Pfizer pill Um, which is an oral medication that you can take in lieu of receiving the vaccine that, in his words, would prevent you from going to the hospital should you be sick with COVID. He also talked about a test-to-treat policy program that would be implemented, which essentially would mean that if you believe that you had COVID, you could show up to your local pharmacy, be tested on the spot, and if you were tested positive for COVID, you would instantly receive um, treatment via the Pfizer pill or vaccine. Um, there's Lilith in the background. Big fan of that Um, policy. He also called for no more shutdowns and ensured that, um, testing would be widely available. He reiterated that if you had requested, um, testing from the federal government and you had already received from the post office that, uh, starting the following week, you could request another round of COVID Uh tests. So, So... he said that we are the United States is um, readily equipped with masks and tests and vaccinations, and so we are ready to combat COVID moving forward. Okay. Um, can we talk tone now? Can we talk his tone? I think that's a great place to bring this to a head. Tone was that of confidence. He started off the evening strong with his discussions on combating Russia and being in favor and supporting Ukraine. And after going through the contentious different aspects of his domestic policy, combating inflation, figuring out how he would pay for his domestic agenda, um, talking about enforcement, discussing COVID, and even hitting a few bipartisan pieces, including um, urging Congress to pass burn pit legislation, which would ensure that those veterans who are exposed to toxic fumes during combat deployments would be um, given adequate care from the uh, Veterans Administration. Yes, y'all. I don't know. I, I saw a Jon Stewart episode. Is it the problem with Jon Stewart on Apple TV? That's right. Watch that episode. It is eye-opening, heartbreaking, and very sad. We can't say anything better or more interesting or different than what Jon Stewart said. 
Uh, so just watch that. Oh my goodness. Definitely um, support that suggestion. Watch that if you can. And again, this was a this was a personal tone for the president, given that his son Bo died of cancer. He linked it to potentially being um, due to toxic exposure while on his deployments in Kosovo and Iraq. And then didn't Lauren Boebert heckle him during that? That's right. Moment? There were a couple of that instances sucked. where uh, Lauren Boebert um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, interrupted the president. Marjorie Taylor Greene interrupting during the president's discussion on immigration. Um, saying build the wall and Bobert um, during this discussion on burn pit legislation. That's just, you know, opportunism by a couple of junior congresswomen. That's gross. Um, one other bipartisan piece that the president discussed is finally fully funding uh, what he calls this cancer moonshot that's ensuring that the federal oh, yeah. government is supporting research and development to uh, make cancer not as difficult of Love that. Um, a travesty of a, you know, of a, of a, of a disease that it is. Um, did you watch any of the rebuttals? I appreciate that there were three, I think. Yeah, so that's a good point. Um, I think there were actually... Four. That's too many rebuttals. That, that is, especially when three of them are from the president's own party. Oh, my. Um, so he received a uh, Republican rebuttal from um, the governor of Illinois. No. Um, he received a Republican rebuttal from the governor of Iowa, who... They're both I-states. You were there. Who compared um, the president... Who's day. the governor of Iowa? Kim Reynolds, the Republican governor of Iowa, who compared... Literally never heard of her. Well, I, you know, the rebuttals are really good opportunities for um, politicians on the rise. Kim Reynolds of Iowa compared the present-day inflationary issues, which is at a 40-year high, to the 1970s, saying that her foreign policy issues are with Russia. Um, inflation is at a 40-year high, and the president is incapable of leading us through this time. She also highlighted a, a number of um, issues on culture wars that are favorable for Republicans. Um, but to pivot back to the president, this was an important moment for him as he he and his party get ready for the 2022 midterms, which yes. historically the president's party tends to lose one or both chambers of Congress. Um, and I think this was an important opportunity for the president to speak to his vision for leading the country into a positive direction. So it's yet to be seen. Um, I think he gave a strong performance. I think it was fantastic to be able to watch the chamber filled with um, important individuals. Oh, one piece we forgot to mention, the designated survivor. (gasps) That's the individual that is a part of the president's cabinet who is asked to not attend the State of the Union in the event of a catastrophic attack. And the designated survivor was... Janet Raimundo, who is the Commerce Secretary and former governor of Rhode Island. I thought you were going to say Janet Reno. I'm going to be honest. Janet Reno. uh, No, no, I know. Not part of this cabinet. Former cabinet member, uh, not the designated survivor. So um, we hope that you all are excited that we're back recording uh, episodes. We are certainly, and we hope to be in your feed soon. We've made a lot of promises about other episodes based on topics from this. Stay tuned. That's right. Bye.